Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Allison Camerata. The January 6th committee wants Donald Trump to face criminal charges. A source tells CNN that the committee is expected to ask the DOJ to pursue at least three criminal charges against former President Trump. They are conspiracy to defraud the federal government, obstruction of an official proceeding, and insurrection. So we'll talk about what all of that means. Plus, tonight, American tourists are stranded at Machu Picchu because of violent protests breaking out across Peru. So we're going to speak live to an American who is stuck there and has run out of her critical medication. She'll tell us if there is a plan to get her out. And what does the term free speech mean to you? It has now become a weapon in the culture war. But what does it even mean? What does it mean online? What does it mean on social media? Does Elon Musk get to decide? Or can we find some universal definition of it? Our super smart panel has some thoughts on all of that. But first, let's get to the new developments out of the January 6th committee. We have with us John Miller, CNN chief law enforcement uh, and intelligence analyst. You have a long title there, John. A lot of people have trouble using the word intelligence <laughs> and John Miller in the same sentence. <laughs> That wasn't the problem. Also, CNN senior political analyst John Avalon and CNN legal analyst Jennifer Rogers. That's a much easier title. Okay, so uh, Jennifer, so uh, let's look at the three charges um, that they are considering. Obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the federal government, insurrection. Which one would be the hardest to prove, do you think? Oh, that's a good question. I think probably the insurrection, the incitement to insurrection, just because it's so rarely charged. You know, what does an insurrection mean? You know, all of these things come into play. So I think that's probably the most challenging for them. It's also the one, though, as John and I were just talking about, that carries the penalty that you can no longer have an office for the United States if you're convicted of that. So that is attractive, I think, to DOJ for that. And one more question with your federal prosecutor hat on. Um, so now what? I mean, so so if the committee sends this over to the DOJ, does it move the needle for the DOJ? I mean, how how much of an impact does the committee's referral have on them? The referral, not much. The evidence, a lot. I mean, they worked really hard, really smart people on the committee. They did an incredible amount of work gathering evidence. So I think they'll be very happy to get all of those transcripts and all of those pieces of evidence. I don't think they'll pay too much attention to what the committee suggests that they do, except in the following way. If they are very, very specific about these are the crimes we propose, these are the elements of those crimes, these are the pieces of evidence that support each of those evidence, you know, each of those uh, elements beyond a reasonable doubt, then I think that's something that DOJ might say, all right, you know, you're smart people, we'll kind of take that, that will help us sift through all of these thousands and thousands of, you know, witnesses, documents, et cetera. But if it's a little bit more vague than that, and it's mostly just an information dump, then they're going to have to go through it all themselves. Anyway. Yeah. So we're going to find out definitively, John, on Monday, yep. they're going to announce what criminal referrals, if any, that they're going to make. The polling is interesting. The latest polling on this, I think, is very interesting because, you know, we've been listening to these hearings for a long time. It's been obviously uh, more than a year. And yet, in terms of the latest polls, the views on January 6th for Democrats, mm-hmm. 90% say it should never be forgotten. Only 8% say it's time to move on. There's another Quinnipiac poll 
that's interesting in terms of how closely are you following this? And the one taken on December 14th, 2022, 61% of Americans are following it very closely or somewhat closely. So people are still engaged in this and what the outcome is going to be. Yeah, because there was an active effort by a former president to overturn an election to keep himself in power. And you you look at that polling. I mean, on the one hand, you say, you know, there's some things you don't don't really put up to a poll. The partisan divide on that's dispiriting because this should be something that goes well beyond partisanship. This is an attack on our country, on our democracy, on our constitution. But also, I want to see where independents are. You know, we, we make this mistake all the time. We think the country's divided into Democrats and Republicans, and it's not. The other third of the country or more are independents. Um, and, and so let, let's not, you know, take this as some, well, we're just deeply divided and we'll never know what happened or get to an agreement. Let's apply the law. This is not an uh, agree to disagree situation. Yeah, no, this, this ain't that. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 you know, the, the law, the, the, the charges they're contemplating are very serious. They have constitutional backing, laws that date back to, you know, the, the Civil War generation trying to put penalties in place so it could not happen again. So, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to see them closing in, in particular on conspiracy to fraud the United States and insurrection. Yeah. So, John, we don't know if the DOJ will choose to charge, nor do we know if uh, former President Donald Trump would ever be convicted. But it's interesting because the people who engaged in the insurrection did hear what they thought were commands. They heard an incitement to violence. They heard an incitement to disruption of um, the peaceful transfer of power. But whether or not they can prove, I mean, there's obviously a disconnect between what necessary there may be a disconnect between what they heard and what President Trump actually said. So that's very interesting because they heard in the speech, you know, go down and give them hell, and they marched down down the street. Um, we heard now in the Oath Keepers trial where the head of the Oath Keepers is texting people and talking in meetings about we're waiting for word from Trump, whether we should call in, you know, the armed team from Virginia. And you will also note in that same stack that when President Trump tweeted to them, stand down and go home, they did it on a dime. So there is this element of command and control. But you've also got Jack Smith, the special counsel, mm-hmm. um, who is uh, doing this in a very, his own rocket docket. People are being called into grand juries. Things are being brought to court and said, you know, this stuff has to be turned over. Rulings are happening. This is going very quickly before this criminal referral. So he's off and running. And I think when you look at him calling in witnesses like Stephen Miller, you know, the president's speechwriter who was part of the ideological machinery behind this um, this entire movement, um, they're going to be asking questions. Who were you talking to that day? Who knew what? When did they know it? Who said what? Who was following what instructions? Yeah. And, and, and look, we've seen through the January 6th committee how many of these folks, including lawyers, took the fifth when they were compelled to testify. Um, but the DOJ's got different you know, levels. I mean, their, their subpoenas carry even more weight. And, and so, you know, th- that's happening in a parallel path right now. Um, but what, what's clear is that there needs to be a degree of accountability. Um, and, and that's the real question. Uh, that I think we confront as a nation. There's right also now. a very different mechanical piece here, and I'll defer to, to Jennifer Rogers. But the last time we did this, Donald Trump was the sitting president. The Department of Justice had Office of Legal Counsel guidance saying you can investigate what you want, but a sitting president can't be indicted mm-hmm. or charged. And there was the awkwardness, which is natural, of an attorney general whose Justice Department special counsel um, was investigating the president who appointed him. None of that is happening here. He's a former president chargeable. The attorney general is not working for the person who's under investigation. 
So what does that make this different? How does that make this different from the last time in terms of likelihood? It may actually happen. I mean, there is no way that Bill Barr was going to allow Mueller Mm -hmm. to indict Trump, even if Mueller ignored the OLC guidance and said he wanted to do it anyway. We don't have that here. I mean, I think that that Merrick Garland probably put Jack Smith in there, even though Garland still has kind of the veto power, right? He'll make the final decision. I don't think he will here. I think he will go with what Jack Smith wants to do. And that guy is a career prosecutor. He's there to make cases. Um, Jennifer, one of the interesting things is that Donald Trump, as we all know, often says two contradictory things at the same time. Mm -hmm. So he tweets out, big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. We'll be wild. Mm -hmm. And then he goes to the ellipse and he says a lot of things at the ellipse. But one of the things that he says to the crowd at the ellipse, now, mind you, some of them were in tactical gear. So he perhaps should have watched his words a little bit more closely. However, one of the things he says is, I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. And so, in other words, there are two, I mean, can't he say in a defense, I told them to be peaceful and patriotic. And wouldn't that help his defense? Yeah, I mean, listen, he always is going to throw stuff in there to help. You know, he also, of course, under force, basically, from his aides, eventually sent tweets saying, you know, go home, be peaceful, etc. He also but said that same thing, to get our country back, we have to fight like hell. Well, listen, well, got- so what DOJ is very good at is telling the story, right? They will say this was the conspiracy. These were the parts of the conspiracy. This is how the conspiracy was carried out. Yeah, sure, he threw some things in there to appease people and so on, but there was a goal here. And really, every step, he was going towards that. Yeah, sound like your opening. Yeah, no, no. And, 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 and people are, are hanging their hat on that word peacefully. Um, read the rest of just that sentence. Today we will see whether Republicans stand strong for integrity of our elections. No problem there. No, no. When he says... I know many of you will be marching on the Capitol. Oh, yeah. Go fight like hell. Rudy Giuliani, who John Miller yes, and I know Rudy very well, Giuliani said, said trial by, by combat. combat. Right, but, but Trump didn't. Yeah, but he said, go fight like hell. March on the Capitol. Um, you know, and, he, and we know now, for example, that he said, well, you know, get rid of the magnetometers. Those, they, they may be armed, but they're not here to hurt me. You know, this speech was far from the most compelling evidence against Trump. I mean, even from the committee and to say nothing of what DOJ is now. But what is the most compelling evidence? It's going to be the witnesses, the people who were in the room with him, the people that the committee didn't get to because they threw up all of these privilege arguments that now Judge Howell has wiped away. The people who were in the room with him when they were talking about this plot and they were saying, this is what we're doing. This is what we have to do next. What are we going to do about Pence? How are we going to, you know, get the state legislators on board? How are we going to get the elections officials on board? All of the people that are in that plot that's the testimony. That's well, that's interesting from. because there are other people that obviously they're considering criminal referrals against. So there's Donald Trump, Mark Meadows, former mm-hmm. White House chief of staff, John Eastman, Jeffrey Clark, Rudy Giuliani, naturally. So um, you think that one of those were spelling out the conspiracy? I think they all work. So remember, there's a whole bunch of different strands here. Even those people that you named were part of different strands in this, right? Like Eastman's giving the legal advice about what Pence can do and so on. Giuliani is, is rallying up the, the state people and Meadows is calling Raffensperger and the other people in the states to try to get the legislatures on board. They all have these different pieces of the plot and that's why they're going to put it all together into and, one And all piece. of those people are getting subpoenas. The White House people are getting subpoenas. The election officials in battleground states who are on the receiving yeah. ends of those calls are getting subpoenas. Um, this is kind of a shotgun approach to the violations. But just, we got to remember, this case has been unfolding for a long time. We get more and more information. Now the January 6th committee's work is coming to a head. We're going to get its culmination, its final argument, with new evidence apparently on on Monday and the final report Wednesday. Don't forget 
how historic this is. There's nothing like this in American history where you have a sitting president trying to overturn an election on the basis of a lie, inciting a mob to attack the Capitol to disrupt a constitutional proceeding. So that's the lens we got to keep in mind and, 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 and think way beyond partisanship and all the kind of BS arguments that get floated by folks trying to deflect and distract. Okay, we'll see on Monday what they have to we say will. and what they've come up with. Thank you all very much. Meanwhile, dozens of Americans are stranded tonight in Machu Picchu because of violent protests across Peru, and they are running out of necessities like medication and food. So up next, we're going to speak to one of those stranded tourists about how she plans to get out. Hundreds of tourists, including many Americans, are stranded in the ancient city of Machu Picchu tonight and reportedly running out of food. It's a very remote area, only accessible by train, and train service has been indefinitely suspended because of violent protests across Peru. At least 20 people have died after Peru's president was impeached and ousted last week. And tonight, the State Department tells CNN that they are in touch with some Americans there. So joining us now is one of the Americans stranded, Catherine Martusi. She's a tourist who is currently stuck in Peru. Catherine, thank you very much for being with us. So what's the plan? What's the latest at this hour? Have they told you how you're getting out of there? Well, uh, we were medically evaluated this morning. Uh, If you were of a certain age and definitely out of medication, then you were prioritized as a category one. We didn't hear anything for the rest of the day. Uh, However, we were told this evening and we got uh, some of our group members got a an email from the State Department that uh, we would be priority number one would be evacuated sometime tomorrow by helicopter. What we know is that there's four helicopters. We do not know the capacity of the helicopters and we do not know if they're making more than one run. Mm. <laughs> I mean, so, so Catherine, all of that is, is nerve wracking, I can imagine. And so you are one of the tourists who is out of medication. You all were told that you were going for, you know, two days, which is the typical amount of time to get up and down from Machu Picchu. So you packed very lightly. How dicey is your medical situation today? Um, it's not life threatening, but the withdrawal from the medication itself has challenges. So to abruptly stop taking this medication uh, is an issue. I don't have any more. Uh, I do have some in Cusco. Uh, So if I get to Cusco, I'll be good. But they do not have that medication here. Some of our group members have um, hypertension, and they were able to get their medication here in Machu Picchu at the hospital. And so, Catherine, we've heard that some of the restaurants have run out of food. What's the situation with food there? Well, uh, we have food. There's no uh, really, uh, you know, we're we're well fed. Um, However, uh, one of the restaurants that our tour tour group uh, contracts with is out of food. And we expect more Uh, establishments to run out of food as time goes on. And as you said in the the, uh, introduction, the only way in here is by that rail. And that rail is privately owned. It is not owned by the government. 
So they can do what they want. And their message to us today via email or their website was that out of an abundance of caution for their employees and the passengers, that they did not know when they were going to be re, um, giving the service again. Right. Uh, we Many people are walking out about an eight to 10 hour hike. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, so you, so, I mean, that's, that's not for the faint of heart, um, particularly through that terrain. As you're speaking, we're looking at the beautiful pictures of Machu Picchu. My family and I went there at exactly this time, three years ago, we were there for New Year's Eve. And I know how remote it is and how breathtakingly beautiful, but you definitely feel like you're away from civilization when you're in that little town of Aquas Calientes, where you are. It's, it's remote. It's very remote. We are extremely lucky that we have internet. We have cell service. I'm very surprised. But don't forget that Machu Picchu Pueblo, the town, exists, as you know, specifically for the tourist that want to enjoy Machu Picchu. Yeah. And so, Catherine, so, um, let me ask you this. Uh, the, even getting a helicopter in there seems uh, dicey because it's a very mountainous region. And as you well know, the, the weather moves in there and it rains and the clouds descend and the visibility is really low. How nerve wracking has all of this been for you? The lack of information. The lack of information and the sort of like, well, maybe this, maybe that um, is very frustrating. Uh, we, we've been very well treated. Today, we, we were about three to four hours wait for the doctor to evaluate our medical priorities. And we heard or a, a, one of the group was back at City Hall in the afternoon, and she said that there are hundreds of people lined up waiting to be evaluated. Yeah, it's it's um, it's not ideal, and it's certainly not what you expected when you no. booked your Machu Picchu trip, <laughs> which I totally... Yeah, go ahead. Although I have to say, if we were two days later, we would have been stuck in Machu Picchu not having seen Machu Picchu because it's closed. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, That's a silver close. lining. I'm glad that I'm glad that you were yeah. able to make it to the top because it is such a special place. <laughs> um, but we're really hoping that you can get out of there tomorrow, and we'll check back with you, Catherine, to make sure that you're okay. Um, yes, ma'am. Best of luck. Hang in there. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being on. We're back now with John Miller, uh, John Avalon, and Nayira Huck. Um, Nayira, State Department, what is the State Department's responsibility when Americans travel like this to a remote area? What, the, what does the State Department do? Well, the State Department typically issues a variety of advisories for different countries. And in this case, given Peru's political unrest, had it as a level three reconsider travel. But wasn't it? It's pretty sudden, right? I mean, they have it now as a level three. But I don't know if when they planned their trip, you know, you planned your trip six months in advance. So, yes. so they didn't know that this it would is, all be it happening. Is a, I, would, I would recommend, highly recommend uh, that anybody considering travel over 
overseas, register for what's called the STEP program. You will automatically get alerts uh, when you're in country or about to travel to the country. It also allows the local consulate office to just know who the American citizens are. So if they have information, intelligence about some pending disaster or political unrest, they will then actually make an effort to contact you and find you and let you know what to do. So some of it is the United States is not trying to track every American who's overseas, and we should have the freedom to travel, but also an awareness of that when we are traveling, we are taking risks. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that Catherine is safe and sound. Many of these towns in areas, remote areas, are designed to cater to tourists. They are 100% dependent on money from overseas. So in this situation, it is in their interest as well to make sure that foreign tourists are taken care of. And I will mention, I have been stranded in Kathmandu, which only has one uh, one one runway when an airplane crashed and it shut down everything. That's where people go everywhere from Everest to visit Buddhist temples. And it was about eight days where my mother and I just kind of sat around a hotel waiting to see how are we going to get out of the country? So that runway was not open for eight days. For eight days. And is only one runway for all international flights, everything out of the country. We did contemplate actually driving through the mountains to India to see if we can get a flight out of Delhi. And at that point, we're like, you know what? You thought we're better, better off. We're, we're better off where we are. Um, John, do you have a travel nightmare story that you'd like to share? Because <laughs> we are interested in that. Um, not, not, not involving, you know, sort of coups and, and a shutdown. But, but look, I mean, the, you know, the interview you just had, obviously, you know, the, the Americans who are stranded there, everyone's stranded there. That's a, it's a reminder of, of when the stability that we often take for granted in the United States falls apart. And, and that our neighbors in South America, it's a very tumultuous time there right now. I mean, you know, not just in, in Peru, uh, but in Argentina, uh, perpetually up, up to north in Venezuela. Yes, but can I just interrupt you for a second? Because politically speaking, isn't it, I mean, based upon what we were just talking about in our last segment, in terms of the insurrection here, they are having this coup because they're president was corrupt, they felt, and was, you know, basically... Tried to dissolve parliament. Well, tried to dissolve parliament, but was also stealing from them or making money while in office. And he was impeached and immediately ousted and arrested. Yes. That is, so there, there's, there's other, a other efficiency con- to that, I suppose. And, and yeah. other countries have travel warnings about the United States. Let's be clear. New yeah. Zealand, Ireland, Japan have called us a gun-crazed culture and warned that, you know, there, there are frequent shootings out there. So it's about a matter of perception of how you approach these issues as well. That's interesting. John? Any thoughts? Well, somewhere, um, as um, as Nayara will tell us, in Peru, there's you know an ambassador who's trying to figure out what do I do with Americans. Sure, You've got 300 people stranded in Machu Picchu, but there's other Americans in in bad positions there. Um, every embassy um, has a a person called the RSO, the Regional Security Officer, and that person is usually a special agent of the Diplomatic Security Service. And that's the person they're turning to right now to who say... Who gets, like, the chopper up in the air to come and rescue them? I mean, that RSO is the one who is who is trying to figure out now between local military assets, assets that we could bring in, how do you get those people out? And is that going to be a little chopper where you can take four people? Do they have Chinooks where you can send four in and get 100 out? Um, how many trips? You brought up the weather. So there's real challenges there, and this is when the State Department um, goes into that kind of contingency planning that they think about a lot. Thank goodness for them. Thank goodness for them. Uh, All right, up next, a somewhat related story, but with a happy ending. That American college student has surfaced more than two weeks after he was reported missing in France. But where has he been for the past two weeks? And what is the U.S.'s responsibility when an American disappears in Europe? And also, what should parents know before their kids study abroad next month?
that American student reported missing in France more than two weeks ago has been found safe in Spain. Thank goodness we can all sleep easier tonight. The family of Kenny Deland Jr. says in a statement today, quote, we received a call from Kenny in the early morning hours. Kenny is in Spain and Carol, his mom, is in France preparing to see Kenny and hopefully bring him home for Christmas. The family had been searching for Kenny after last hearing from him on November 27th. The college senior was then reported missing by his fellow students on November 29th. The family has not yet said what Kenny has told them about where he's been and what he's been doing. Back with us is John Miller. Also joining us, we have CNN political commentator Errol Lewis, host of the You Decide podcast, and Nayira Huck is also back. Um, Errol, I must admit, when you said on this program on Monday night earlier this week, you were like, he's probably just traveling around Europe, having a blast, meeting people, having a good time. I was like, wow, Errol has some rose-colored glasses on. And I thought you were wrong. You were right. I had some experience with this in my 20s, and I think they still do it. You you get a year-rail pass, and you can ride anywhere on any train in Europe pretty much for free after you've paid this, this, and you know, and so you, you get, you get around and one tries to see a little bit of the world. I mean, yes, but that's before cell phones are all when you did, I did it too. And that was before cell phones. Your parents weren't expecting you to check in every day. This was strange. He had checked in every day for weeks and then he went dark. On it sounds parents. like a heck of a trip, huh? Calling your mom every day. Is, <laughs> is that the way to see Europe? I mean, it, it, maybe he just needed a little freedom. Maybe. I mean, to be honest, and I love that you're still wearing your rose-colored glasses, but to be honest, we really don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he had, we don't know what happened. We, I mean, in other words, nothing nefarious, but we don't know if he was having some sort of emotional issue. We just don't know. And I hope that his parents will say it because the truth is, John, the media did find him. Because the, his parents went to the press and because places like CNN covered it, he saw himself and he realized that he was in trouble and called home. I mean, that's what you want to have happen. It worked, but it would be nice to get an explanation. It would be. And I mean, this was, you know, a low priority for the police in France. They looked at it as he's 22 years old. He can go where he wants, do what he wants. And as far as we can tell from the video we've seen, you know, the things he's buying before he went off the grid, he seemed to have left of his own accord and was okay. So from the French perspective, this is kind of let us know if something happens. The FBI was pushing very hard to get information and getting very little. Um, They were communicating with the Buffalo PD um, and Rochester and the family. But uh, the frontal cortex in the male being (laughs) is not developed until you're 25 years old, which means complex decision-making is often hampered. So you're in in the Errol camp of, like, he just went off and forgot to tell people. Okay, so I actually am, but let me complicate it a little bit because... People who run away and go off the grid, um, people say, well, he's not acting normal. When you run away, you're escaping normal because you're not happy. Uh, Was it that he went to France and the prosecutor interviewed people who said, I'm not fitting in. I wasn't prepared for this. My French isn't good enough. I can't communicate. I'm not making friends. Did he go off the grid and say, I can't get on the phone with my parents and say, you know, this college thing you spend all that money on and my French trip, I'm dialing out of it. Or do you just take a walk for a while and say, I'm going to try something else? This is the thing that makes parents say things like, thank God you're okay. When you get home, we're going to kill you. You're grounded. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And Nair, that that raises the point of it's um, the holiday break for millions of college students around the country. And in a few weeks, many of them are going to go off to semester abroad. And so when American kids go off to semester abroad, 
What is the responsibility, once again, of the State Department, the FBI? I mean, who does keep those kids safe beyond their own bad frontal cortex? Well, that's part of the challenge, right? You're an adult at 18, but we still want to think of all college students as kids, even though when I was a college student, that's the last thing. I mean, I thought I was mature and responsible, um, but in hindsight, probably could have done some better communication with my parents instead of ignoring their phone calls for days on end. So there is that challenge that we wrestle with. The State Department does uh, the consular affairs offices. Uh, they, their interest is in protecting the safety, security, and they say the interests of American citizens abroad. Now, those interests typically are about birth certificates, getting a passport. If you've been arrested, it's not a 22-year-old young man who seems of sound mind making decisions to travel. Similarly here in the United States, right, a missing persons report, police will, they, they don't necessarily share the same information unless they think there is something nefarious at stake. So it is not, uh, despite the parents' concern, overall the highest risk situation. So I'd say the family is very lucky that the FBI was indeed involved in this type of scenario. That strikes me as unusual. Um, I guess I'm in the arrow camp of seeing that uh, it is very difficult when young people often go off to college or a new environment, don't fit in. You have these emotional challenges and don't make the best of decisions. Yeah. I mean, I just wish that he checked in with his parents. I mean, obviously, from what we know, they were really scared and we all were scared. And, you know, sometimes these, as we all know, do not have the best endings. I'm in the parents camp. If my kids go off the grid, I'm pulling out all the stops. We'll figure it out later. Mm -hmm. Agreed. All right. Thank you all very much. Now to this. Free speech is being weaponized in the culture wars. And it's all playing out, as you know right now, on Elon Musk's Twitter, but it's bigger than that. What does free speech really mean these days? Who polices it? We discuss all of that next. Elon Musk claims he's a champion of free speech. But why did he ban journalists from Twitter? The new Twitter chief likes to bandy around the term free speech a lot. But what does it even mean? John Avalon, Errol Lewis are back with us, and CNN media analyst Sarah Fisher joins the conversation. Here's an example. Here's what um, Elon Musk tweets. This is a battle for the future of civilization. If free speech is lost, even in America, tyranny is all that lies ahead. John. Does free does free does freedom of speech mean the same thing on social media that it means in the First Amendment, or do we need a new definition of this? Well, no. I mean, free speech in the First Amendment is that Congress shall make no law to abridge freedom of speech, which means that freedom of speech is protected against government interference in a private platform. That's largely up to the, the questions of of what standards police will want to create. And this is another case where our, our technologies are outpacing our laws. But this. The, the, the culture war politicization, the term free speech, is itself part of how we're, we're in, this, in this mess. And really what he's pointing to by implication is frustration with illiberalism on the left. But his actions, for example, last night show the hypocrisy of that position when it's being bandied about by people on the right. Absolutely. So, Sarah, I mean, his, his definition of freedom of speech is quite is subjective, of course, as is everyone's. But it means like he doesn't like it when he does something against him. And so on, online and on social media, what does free speech mean? Free speech means that you can say anything that's basically not illegal, you know? And if you want to say something, you shouldn't be banned from a social media platform for doing it. But to John's point, Elon Musk has the right to do it. The challenge then becomes if you're a user, do you want to use that platform? You should have the right to say whatever you want, again, barring that it's not outrageous or illegal, or barring that it doesn't violate policies that social media platforms implement, implement like hate speech and violence, et cetera. If you get banned 
for posting a link to an account that tracks Elon Musk's private jet based off of publicly available information. Yes. That should not be happening on a, pl- a private platform like this. And I think Elon Musk might have a user problem if people feel like they can't speak up and say their mind on Twitter. Against him. Yes, and I do, but I do want to make this bigger than Elon Musk because it is about all of us, Errol. Like, free speech does mean something different online and on social media because, you know, I started with just saying as long as you don't say anything outrageous or illegal, people say outrageous things all the time. Sure. And people often, the line of what is violent rhetoric or when it goes over that line is very fuzzy. Wait, look, people should be clear that we're talking about concepts about what is acceptable or possible in the public square. This is not the public square. This is a privately owned company uh, and the guy who owns the company uh, will do whimsically, capriciously, vengefully, in, in a very petty way, whatever he feels like doing. But all of them on social media will as well. In other words, like Facebook right. has its own rules. Well, and, and, and people have to be very clear. I mean, you know, a, a lot like many people, a big part of my life is on Google documents, you know, and in Gmail and so forth. And we don't own that data. We don't even own access to that data. And the reality is, you know, whether you've paid for it or not, you you know, look at the fine print. It's theirs. And so we should all be very clear that, you know, the technology has gone into a very different place and people will go to court and they will lose over and over again if they think they have the right to their Twitter account, access to their Twitter account, a year's worth of data posting and links that they put up on that platform to help make other people rich. I mean, I think really where a lot of this is also, I think, going to start to sort of uh, fall apart is when it comes to advertisers who have been walking away in droves because they don't like uh, being in an environment with a bunch of neo-Nazis <laughs> and a capricious owner. I mean, that's, that's just not where you want to try and yes. sell, you know, the next model of Ford, you know, <laughs> trucks or something. I get that it's not but, a good business model, but can we have some established definition of what free speech is supposed to be online, or have we just are we just leaving it up to the Elon Musks of the world? Um, we need to coalesce around common values again. I think one of the things, ironically, that could unite us is an articulation of liberal values, uh, understanding that there are people who are going to be illiberal and extreme. But think about, I mean, you know, Errol makes a great point. Because Twitter has become, to some extent, the public square, but it is not, in fact, public. But there are rules, right? There's no right to, for example, in the, in the Constitution, free speech, sorry, in, in, in interpretations of the First Amendment, there's no right to yell fire in a crowded theater, falsely. for example, right? If, if, if it's on fire, you can yell it. Yeah. Yes, yes, falsely. Yeah. Fal- falsely. <laughs> and, and we're dealing with massive disinformation. We're dealing with algorithms that amplify the most divisive, extreme uh, voices. And that's having a, a real impact on our democracy that we're dealing with every day. So that's why content moderation is a complex problem, but an urgent one. So we should focus on common values and principles, but we, this is why you can't simply, you know, throw your hands up when it comes to content moderation, because you're going to be creating a cesspool that's going to degrade democracy. But we were getting there. That's the thing that's so frustrating. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Reddit, they were all part of a group called GARM Mm -hmm. that was trying to come up with standard definitions of things like hate speech and misinformation so that the entire internet universe and ecosystem, at least the biggest parts of it, could have uniform definitions. And then what happened? Well, GARM still exists, but, you know, Twitter is kind of pieced out. You know, Elon Musk has said that he's removing the content moderation panel, which was a panel of outside experts that can inform Twitter. My sources in the advertising community say that Elon Musk is MIA when it comes to taking this stuff seriously and being involved in meetings. You know, when it comes to getting these advertisers to stick on the platform, he'll fake it and say, oh, yes, I care so much about these values. But he's not really digging in and attending. Well, furthermore, he also tweeted out misinformation. So he's an offender of this. Yes, but the one thing I will say that gives me a little bit of optimism 
we actually have had some courts challenge some of the stuff at Twitter. You'll recall that Donald Trump tried to block certain people on Twitter. That stuff went mm-hmm. to courts. You'll recall that AOC actually had a situation where she was blocking people. So it's not just on the right. And that stuff also has been, you know, there are people who put up lawsuits. So we can actually use the rule of law to fix this. Unclear at this point what lawsuits are going to come out of the Elon Musk range. It's going to be slow going, but I mean, and, and to talk about some of the other pro, uh, uh, platforms for a minute, you know, it, it is it is it's petrifying. It's horrifying to see that on Facebook there's evidence that when some you know young teenage girl who's you know depressed is looking yes. at things like suicide, the algorithm starts giving them links all the time towards certain and anorexia, yeah, etc. They give them they, they they feed them the very information that will destroy them. You want to talk about a value that's sort of gone out of whack? We do have to get uh, some control over all of this, no and, and whether it, it takes law or just custom or bad press. All of that will Well, work. I, I think bad precedent is sufficient, and we do need laws, and I think algorithm reform is the, is the very least of it, and there's a lot of important being work being done looking at that link, but also the impact on our democracy in terms of the radicalization of people, the promotion of conspiracy theories. You ask, what, what are the common values, you know, in addition to, I think, more transparency and understanding of what these algorithms are feeding people? Um, you know, part of free speech implicitly is that people own their speech, but the problem of disinformation and bots is very real, something that Elon Musk has talked about. Um, but that's a, that's a real issue. You know, just simple, you know, the verification that there's an individual behind this Mm -hmm. account. A human. Yeah. That's that's a place to start. start All right, friends. Thank you all all very much. Really interesting. And we'll be right back. In this season of giving, we want to show you how you can help our 2022 top 10 CNN heroes continue their important work and have your donations matched dollar for dollar. Here's Anderson. I'm Anderson Cooper. Each of this year's top 10 CNN heroes proves that one person really can make a difference. And again, this year, we're making it easy for you to support their great work. Just go to CNNHeroes.com and click donate beneath any 2022 top 10 CNN hero to make a direct contribution to that hero's fundraiser. You'll receive an email confirming your donation, which is tax deductible in the United States. No matter the amount, you can make a big difference in helping our heroes continue their life-changing work. And right now, through January 3rd, your donations will be matched dollar for dollar, up to a total of $50,000 for each of this year's honorees. CNN is proud to offer you this simple way to support each cause and celebrate all of these everyday people who are changing the world. You can donate from your laptop, your tablet, or your phone. Just go to CNNHeroes.com. Your donation in any amount will help them help others. Thanks. And if you know someone who deserves to be a CNN hero, tell us about them. Nominations for 2023 are now open. You can go to CNNHeroes.com. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Have a great weekend. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.